In November 2018, Associated Press shocked the global medical community with the news from China. A Chinese researcher claimed that he helped make the world's first genetically edited babies. He edited the genes of twins with CRISPR-Cas9 technology with the aim, as he claimed, to make the babies resistant to possible future infections with HIV, the AIDS virus. The medical community was more or less unanimous in condemnation of the act, because CRISPR technology is so new. But this was not the only news from genetics that resonated in the medical community in November. A startup from the Silicon Valley Nebula Genomics announced its offering of free genome sequencing in which the ownership and control of the data would be in individuals' hands. Even more, according to the company's predictions based on their business model, patients could even make money with their data because companies and research organizations in the future would be willing to pay for the cost of sequencing if, in exchange, they would get some key medical information about the individuals involved. Dear listeners, you're listening to Faces of Digital Health, and our topic today is genetic testing, gene therapies, and gene editing. The expert you will hear from is Natalie Pankova. Natalie has a medical background, but currently works as the COO of Shivom, a global genomics blockchain company targeting developing countries first to discover genetic specifics of various ethnicities, which could improve drug development and help uncover why certain ethnicities don't respond to specific medicines. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz. Just before we start, a quick invite. Regular listeners of this podcast, do leave a rating or a review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And for all new listeners, if you like what you will hear in today's episode, check out other episodes as well, either in your podcast feed or on Medium, where if you search for Faces of Digital Health, you will find short summaries of each podcast. Now back to Genomics. Shivom is one of the blockchain uh, startups that is active in the field of genomics. And Natalie, you started as a chief scientific officer and are now working as the chief operating officer with the company. Last year, CB Insights reported that more than 80 startups are working in the whole uh, genome space. So for an introduction, I wanted to start with your thoughts thoughts regarding the whole industry. There's a lot going on in genetics, yet it seems that uh, every time we talk about the topic, uh, the company that gets mentioned is only 23andMe because they are the industry leader, which has been uh, in the market for, for quite a while. So what's your perspective on the genomics um, startup or just industry that's developing? I think it's a really great space, and I think it's an exciting space to be in right now. I think where we are with with genomics in general and consumer genomics is at this cusp where 
uh, it's becoming much more affordable now for people, much more uh, standard, um, and and people are encouraged to actually, you know, get themselves sequenced. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity in this space right now, and especially with uh, with the cost dropping, I think that that opportunity is going to increase. There are definitely a lot of companies working both on the consumer genomic side, but also on the clinical genomic side, and and those are kind of almost uh, kind of two different uh, fields. Almost twenty three and Me has done a really great job historically overall, and kind of pioneering the consumer genetic space. They've gone through through some of the hoops, um, the regulatory, the ethical considerations that have been put into place. And, um, and now they're doing a really great job in reaching out to the consumer audience and really putting themselves as kind of one of the major players in the space. And I think that that's why, um, that's why you typically hear about 23andMe so often and really everywhere. Um, it's that they've really done a good job in marketing themselves. 23andMe did a lot for the awareness of the genetic testing. And one of the uh, things that people don't like when it comes to 23andMe is the fact that the company owns the data, which is where the blockchain companies uh, working in genomics stepped in. So this whole idea about giving the patients the ownership uh, of the data and all the rights concerning the management. Um, this is also what Shivomi is addressing. And another company that's most prominent in the blockchain space is Nebula Genomics. So um, a quick question, how would you say that you differentiate from them and from other companies that are also trying to succeed in the space? There are, first of all, there are a number of companies that are kind of popping up in the space, both blockchain and non-blockchain. I think it's, as I said, it's a very exciting space and a huge market opportunity to be a part of right now. So I think that people are realizing that and they're constructing business models and use cases and companies around this because of that opportunity. 23andMe has over 5 million users now. So uh, they've, they've got, you know, their user base, but uh, it's quite a small uh, user base. And if you think about the number of people who've been sequenced in any kind of ways, maybe about 20 million or so. Um, and there are over 7 billion people in the world. So there's huge opportunities for many players, you know, uh, blockchain and non-blockchain to kind of be a part of this, of this growing market. And um, we're kind of trying, we're trying to differentiate ourselves uh, in a number of ways. One is obviously the kind of the security and encryption component. So uh, blockchain allows you um, to do some things. It does not necessarily allow you to have the strongest security and really privacy. So blockchain enables transparency. But uh, if you really want to keep data private, it should be encrypted. So we're working on encryption technologies in order to be able to provide better security for people. The other component that we're differentiating ourselves in is we would really like to be a global player. I think this is important in the genetic space overall, because right now data sets are quite biased in the North American, Caucasian, Western European populations. However, if pharma are really using or research organizations, uh, institutions are really using that data 
to uh, look at drug development strategies. They really need a more diverse view of the genetic data sets. So we're working on a global scale. And um, we've got some projects that we're working on in places like India and are hoping to launch a study in Nigeria soon um, to look at very specific, unique data sets for, um, you know, prominent diseases that uh, can be better addressed if there is better genetic information provided. So that's the second part. And uh, the third part is we're really working hard to create a user, uh, a great user experience in this uh data marketplace that we're creating. So it is really about the um, the sharing component of that data that uh, we think is going to be important. So allowing users to control access to their data, to control the sharing settings, um, and also to be able to have enterprises like pharma uh, use that data effectively. When you began, you already uh, announced that you will be working in the developing countries. You mentioned some, and maybe you can add a little bit on what's the thinking behind uh, doing research and trying to uh, expand the blockchain network there. Because from a medical standpoint, we know that uh, different uh, races or um, different cultures have a different genetic background, and that it's all very important when it comes to uh, figuring out what the effect of medicine will be based on uh, based on that. Our work in India, so we're really focused on type 2 diabetes there. Um, and not just in India, type 2 diabetes is an important disease to, to look at the genetics of. But especially in India, there is a, a strong increase in the prevalence of type 2 diabetes that can't entirely be explained by the lifestyle of the people. So we understand that there must be some sort of a genetic component uh, that's contributing to this. So we want to be able to, to look into that further and to be able to study it more. We believe that it will be valuable for uh, research and pharma who are trying to develop treatments for this type of disease. Type 2 diabetes is a complex disease, which means that there are many genetic interactions and genetic contributions that play a role in the development. And the way that one person presents with a disease isn't necessarily the case for how another person presents with a disease. So that's why it's so important to be able to really look at um, a large population studies and uh, people with different genetic backgrounds so that treatments can be developed specifically for individuals that uh, present with certain manifestations of the disease. Otherwise, you get this kind of scenario where um, a person or a population is prescribed, you know, the same drug treatment for type 2 diabetes, but there's a lot of non-responders. So it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money, um, and it's really an inefficient way of doing drug development. And, and drug development is immensely expensive for pharma. So they would like better ways to understand the genetic backgrounds of populations so that they can treat them more effectively. Um, and we have a, a similar kind of approach to the work that we plan to do in Nigeria. So in Nigeria, we are looking at uh, sickle cell disease. So that's a, it's a rare disorder, but it's one of the most common rare disorders. It's a blood disorder that's extremely, extremely prevalent in Nigeria and Africa, but also on a global scale. So it has really global impact, similar to type 2 diabetes. And, and similar 
people who uh, get complications of sickle cell disease don't present in the same way. And so it's, it's really not that well understood why some people get really severe manifestations, really severe crises episodes, and, uh, and why they don't respond to certain medications while other people do. So it's these types of diseases, these very complex diseases that are very interesting to understand uh, on a global scale, but they can be studied at a local scale in certain regions. Since I said that we're going to focus on the business side of genetic testing, I'm wondering what your experiences or approach is to getting in these markets. It's very challenging if your headquarters is elsewhere and especially young companies usually don't have the resources to build additional offices in every country that they want to work with. Then there's the culture specifics of each region. So how? what's your experience in that sense? How does the on-the-ground work look like? It really is about a lot of partnerships. In this kind of um, scenario, you really need uh, help from local institutions and local governments in order to be able to carry out the work effectively. As you said, it's a very complex environment. Every country, every region even within a country is different. Uh, you need to really understand the regulations um, in that region and be able to work with local players who can help you with things like even translation to gain the trust of the people. And that's the only way that you'll be able to, to be successful. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to uh, go right away and start sequencing and start selling products, but it's really uh, building those early partnerships that once we're ready to do that, uh, we have the infrastructure and we have the support system to do it. One important question when it comes to uh, genomic testing and uh, genetic information is that countries uh, and governments have a large interest uh, in the topic. Um, we expect a lot from the future and being able to uh, figure out things based on a population data. However, when it comes to politics, uh, this can become dangerous. You know, in the wrong hands, the wrong decisions can be made with, with sensitive medical information. And this is where blockchain companies come in, and this is where the patient privacy and protection with the cryptography comes in. So the thing that I'm kind of curious about is uh, how are you successful with uh, convincing um, local partners or uh, political decision makers that it's worth uh, collaborating with you? Because essentially by uh, implementing solutions such as yours, you can prevent uh, a broad access to the sensitive data. And for example, China already last year created the world's first big data health management platform to gather data from various devices in one place and also the genetic data, I think, from the, from the population. It's a challenging space, of course, when it comes to regulation, I think in part because regulation is so uncertain now in terms of blockchain technologies. It's very different, basically, across uh, countries and across governments, how they feel about the technology. So you have to identify, especially in the early stages, 
governments and organizations that are really open to using it. So ones that understand the benefits of it. So India for what for us was one of those cases. They understood blockchain technology. They understood the transparency, the additional security that it can a- offer uh, to the data. And they were really willing to work with innovative companies who were looking to implement such solutions. So I think it is important to be able to find these types of um, these types of players early on, kind of in the game, because you also want to drive adoption of your technology and you want to drive adoption of it in the field. Um, and the only way you'll be able to do it is by identifying those individuals and those stakeholders who are open to that. So you're not going to go to pilot your technology in a country that doesn't want to do it. Um, I think that that's going to be challenging, and I think it'll come only um, as adoption reaches certain levels. So it's going to come in time, but not yet. By the way, how closely are you following what BGI is doing? So BGI is a Chinese genetic uh, company that's the leader on the Chinese market, which consequently means that we're probably going to be hearing a lot about them uh, in the next years. Yeah, absolutely. So BGI is a huge global player, actually. They're doing a lot in the in the genomic space. They're doing a lot in sequencing. They're doing a lot in data analysis. They have a number of projects in the genetic sequencing space. And uh, I think there is a number of other players that are doing certain projects similar. Illumina, for example, is a huge sequencing player in the market. They've got uh, a huge uh, market share of the sequencing market. They're doing a lot of their own projects on a global scale. And there's a lot of initiatives across the globe who are looking to sequence specific populations. So, you know, we have 100,000 Genomes Project in the UK. There's projects in the US and Singapore, all over the world now. So I think a lot of countries, including China, but a lot of countries are recognizing the potential of genomic medicine and genomic technology. And they want to be able to contribute to the field and also learn from it. As some of these projects come to completion, so for example, 100,000 Genomes Project in the UK, we're going to have a lot of lessons learned that we're going to be looking to uh, as a field, as an industry, and and also looking to implement, you know, things like follow-on projects, looking to sequence now a million people or five million people. So all these things are, are really happening right now. How optimistic are you regarding the gene therapist? Gene therapist before coming to Shivom, you worked in pharma, you specialized in eye diseases. And when it comes to gene therapies, there are some indication for um, various diseases. Uh, and among them um, are also the, the eye diseases. So um, the effective range of gene therapies uh, are currently in the area of hematology, ocular neurodegenerative diseases and several cancers. I'm trained as a medical researcher, so I started out in ophthalmology and uh, kind of fell into that by chance, uh, but I found it a very interesting field, and specifically I worked kind of on the inflammatory side of eye disease, which is fascinating. Basically, I, I would have to say that in terms of genetic therapies in the form of delivering a gene to a patient that is lacking um, that specific gene in order to be able to treat a, uh, an 
a condition such as an inherited uh, retinal dystrophy that's associated with a loss of a specific gene, I am absolutely pro that. Um, and I think that it is an excellent approach uh, to treating these types of diseases. So for example, uh, one company's Spark Therapeutics. So they have a treatment called Luxterna, which treats patients lacking this gene called RPE65. It's an excellent team that developed this treatment at the University of Pennsylvania. I've actually met Gene Bennett, who initially developed it. They actually uh, tested it to treat blind dogs and were very successful to do that, and then moved on to, to uh, clinical trials uh, for safety and efficacy in humans. And really, they've shown um, some remarkable safety and efficacy data um, I've seen personally myself people with diseases like retinitis pigmentosa, which is a genetic retinal condition. And these patients are often young, and it's horrible to see them lose their sight. When you have a treatment that's able to give somebody back their sight, I think it's a remarkable thing to be able to, to do that and to witness that, especially if it's a one-time treatment that can help these people see. And, uh, and Spark Therapeutics carried out uh, safety trials uh, both in children and adults. So they showed that it was safe in children as well. And it actually just got recently approved to launch in the EU, which is really exciting. Those types of therapies, they can be applied not just to ophthalmology, but to other uh, monogenic conditions where you essentially are missing one specific gene. Um, now, I'm not extremely convinced about the gene editing approach with CRISPR, where gene components are cut out, essentially, particularly pre-birth, which is uh, very controversial. I think there are a lot of unknowns in the long term uh, in terms of the effects of this. I think it's a very early technology. It's only been around for a couple years, essentially. It's hugely problematic because uh, genes are often very much tied or linked to one another. And so you never know what you're affecting by cutting out certain genes or certain gene components. It's really uh, a huge discussion right now. There's a bit of controversy going on in China over uh, creating these types of genetically edited babies. The issue is the receptor that this researcher is removing it's an, a very important receptor that's associated with the immune system. And so we, we won't understand the effects of removing that receptor until those, those children develop, essentially. CRISPR has attracted a lot of attention since uh, it has been announced uh, the first time. And uh, the researcher who designed uh, the, the method was worried even when she discovered Covered it that it would be used uh, improperly, and that's basically what we see that now happened in in China, where the editing was done prematurely, and when the scientific community uh, was appalled when a Chinese uh, researcher uh, announced that he uh, edited some genes of two uh, twins. It's a huge ethical issue and at the same time it uh, opens up the question of um, how fast can the medical progress be and um, how long are we going to be in this saying uh, you know that uh, medical progress happens one death at a time. The ethical component in that story comes from the fact that uh, 
the parent of the babies was a carrier of the HIV virus, right? And so the argument of the scientist is that he has edited out this gene for this receptor. It would make the babies resistant to HIV. He's claiming that he's he's treating them from a disease that they were bound to get. That's really where the ethics become complicated because should you have let them go on and live with HIV? But it's challenging because of what I just said. So. Um, there's a lot of advancements in treating HIV in very different ways, right? But by removing that specific gene, he might actually be, be increasing their susceptibility to other diseases. So um, who's to say where the ethical boundary is there where you might be decreasing the susceptibility for HIV, but at the same time increasing the susceptibility to something like the influenza? And what happens if that child dies, for example, from the common flu? So it's very, very complex. At this point, we really don't understand genetics uh, to the point where we can map every single gene interaction. So we don't know the outcomes of what's going to happen by removing a specific gene. That is why this regulation, I think, that's being called uh, for on a global level for the CRISPR-Cas9 system, I think it's it's valid and worthwhile because we really need to look at it long term and be able to understand the long term outcomes and consequences be- before being able to do these types of treatments. But at the same time, as you said, I mean, people are scientists, researchers are typically much more willing to push boundaries when there is a line, you know, comes between health and disease or life and death. That's why we're never going to really stop having these medical controversies because scientists and and medical professionals, they're always going to want to push those boundaries in order to be able to treat patients better. Yeah, the way you described it, it almost sounds as a similar dilemma that doctors or researchers might have in um, in uh, trial therapies. So before therapies are uh, deemed to be safe, they are tested on patients, and it's usually patients that don't have any other choice. Yeah, I mean that's exactly right, and uh, and and not even always. I mean sometimes. It's just um, that the therapy that's being proposed is deemed to be a better therapy. And I think this is kind of what, uh, what was being believed in this case, that this kind of gene editing is a better therapy than, for example, having the patients take antiretroviral treatments if they develop HIV. Basically, then it's up to the patient, or in the case of a child, it's up to the parent to decide what kind of therapy they prefer, right? So in the case of clinical trials, you have to go through a pretty rigorous informed consent process before uh, you put the person in the trial and are able to offer them a therapy that's new, that hasn't been approved yet. Even this researcher in China, he's stating that he went through a rigorous informed consent process with, um, with the parents, though probably not in the correct way is typically it's a third party that's doing the informed consent, not the treating doctor. But I think it's really going to come down in the end to the decision of the patient. But how well that patient is educated is really, really important. And it's the same idea when it comes to the use of their genetic data. It's really important to be able to inform the patient and explain to the patient what it means 
to provide your genetic data to a database or, or to a third party, what it means for the user, for the patient, um, and what it means to, to the third party. And overall, um, they have to understand what their data can do. The majority of people will actually uh, check off and say, you know, they consent to their data being shared. But, uh, but you wonder sometimes how well do they really understand what it is they're sharing and for what reasons. That's a very good point. Um, when not informed, people might not not even care, you know, because they are more interested in the immediate immediate benefit or immediate information that they're going to get with a specific genetic test in comparison to uh, worrying about all the data privacy issues. A lot of people just want access to the product, really, as you said. And, and there's also people, I mean, that have this altruistic view and they're very eager to actually help research um, that's why a lot of people join clinical trials. You know, they either they have an intrinsic incentive because it, they're either sick, they have a condition, or they're predisposed to getting a certain condition based on their genetic information, or they know somebody, so a loved one, a family member, or a good friend maybe. And that's great that they have this view that they want to provide their information for research and to help develop better treatments. And there are companies... Uh, some companies that focus, you know, primarily on the research aspects of data sharing. But there are some companies that are very focused on the drug development component with pharma. I think the challenge really comes when this happens. It, like what happens is this DNA data, it passes through many, many hands, right? So it's very hard to ensure who's doing what with that data. So uh, giving the data to a pharma, even within that organization, you don't necessarily know who's viewing the data, who's processing the data. The user would never get that information back. And with blockchain and with these kinds of, um, with companies like ours, you can actually have an audited record or an auditable record of where has the data been processed and by whom. And I think that's what's going to be um, really important for people moving forward because the people are becoming more aware uh, with these kinds of, you know, social media scandals, basically, that we've been hearing in the news, uh, that, you know, their data is valuable, it's going for all sorts of various purposes, uh, to be used and processed in various ways. So they're starting to understand, and they're starting to become cautious of uh, who they're providing their data and uh, and for what purpose? Yeah, and most importantly, uh, the blockchain enables the immutability of the audit trail. So there is no provider that could tamper with that. And I think that's one of the biggest promises that we've been hearing about when it comes to blockchain solutions. Yeah, exactly. So the person, the user, if they can see, you know, an audit trail of what's going on with their data, they know that it's legitimate. But one last question. In March uh, this year, so in March 2018, uh, a former PM of Estonia joined your Innovation Council. How much perspective did you get uh, in terms of managing data on a larger national scale? Estonia is a prime example of digitization and um, managing data effectively with a with foreign individual. We haven't really tapped into the Estonia aspect of it. I think um, 
we we certainly understand the challenges of managing data on a large scale. And that was very helpful for us. Um, the fact that there's multiple systems that come into play when you're looking at something like a government organization. So Estonia has done a really great job with implementing blockchain into um, their their government systems, but they didn't just do it from a healthcare perspective. You know, they did it on all levels. And I think that um, to do something like that, it's very complex and they were successful in it, but they are a small country, a relatively small country. And uh, what you really understand is that it's not that easy in all countries and in all organizations. And it's very unlikely that uh, something, for example, like the the NHS in the UK is going to turn over their whole system and just implement blockchain at all levels. Right. So so those are aspects that are really important to understand when you're trying to to implement a new technology, not just blockchain, but also blockchain at a, a very kind of fundamental level and at a very high level. And I think that um, in terms of being able to do that, I think we're still for most countries and, and most large organizations quite a long way away, actually. But on the consumer side, and being able to implement blockchain technology in a consumer product, I think that that can be achieved much more effectively. So that was that's a little bit of a lessons learned, just kind of from gathering information from multiple organizations. But uh, I think in order to drive an organizational change, you need uh, a really major player, something fundamental to drive that adoption or like a government regulation. But on the consumer side, that can be achieved by providing users with a very good product. So creating something that adds value to consumers, uh, which is what we're trying to do, can actually help drive adoption and help drive that change. And, uh, and hopefully we're on a trajectory where, you know, both sequencing and blockchain technology will become much more commonplace um, and allow people to really securely store, share and monetize their data. This was the 24th episode of Faces of Digital Health. Stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your colleagues and come back. A new episode is published every two weeks.